This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Thursday, February 8th. Several hundred delegates discuss how to crack down on the alarming rise of auto theft. Many recommendations were pitched at the federal government summit. We'll ask Public Safety Minister Dominic Leblanc what he plans to move forward with. And Canada's home builders say they want to fill the housing shortage, but they're going to need to see a few changes first. What they're asking for from government. We begin in Ottawa, where government officials have been hearing from local leaders, police and industry stakeholders about the rise in auto thefts across Canada. We have a crisis across Canada with cars that are stolen every few minutes, and it's completely unacceptable. I would say the number one issue um, is public safety. You know, in, in Brampton, we've had extortion issues, auto theft skyrocketing. Um, I would say that that is playing a more significant uh, role right now in terms of the worry that it causes communities, uh, much greater than, than housing affordability. The Federal Minister of Public Safety, Dominic Leblanc, joins me now. Minister, welcome back to the show. All right, thanks, David. Good evening. Minister, we heard a lot of suggestions and ideas on how to deal with car theft today, but they're suggestions and ideas we've heard consistently for a while now. I mean, what new... Uh, came out of this today? So uh, I think one of the new things is uh, the government's intention to ban uh, the possession or sale uh, of these devices. I guess they're known as flippers. I learned that today. But they're the electronic copying devices that allow criminals to copy the electronic keys of cars. We heard my colleague, the transport minister, say that uh, he was going to look at vehicle regulations, manufacturing regulations around uh, vehicles in Canada, obviously with Americans, but to see is there a way that we can improve the security in the vehicles. The thing that I took away from the meeting today, David, was a real sense of urgency shared by everybody, including obviously the government of Canada, in what additional things we can do together provinces, the government of Canada, law enforcement, not just the RCMP, but provincial, municipal police, uh, the border services agency. Uh, We said we were open to looking at the criminal code, uh, if there's a way that that needs to be strengthened. So everybody wants to work quickly, but collaboratively. And that's why having mayors of some of the biggest cities in the country participate in the conversation we thought was very good. Okay, I, I saw Minister Champagne talking about banning the import of these uh, flip, flipper devices, which allow them to copy the, uh, the, the, the wireless signals from keys, for example, to get into a car and, and start a car. Uh, so shutting that down, at least legal requirement for that, is something that could probably be done fairly quickly through regulation. But working with the industry on, on changing the way they make cars, you know, uh, dealing with criminal code amendments, where, what's the urgency on those things? What kind of a timeline are we looking at? Uh, we left the meeting, everybody, the provincial governments, the police authorities that were there, uh, with a common understanding that over the next number of weeks, not months, but the discussion was sort of uh, this winter and the spring comes in a few months, uh, we would have a concrete series of common action items that each jurisdiction could work on quickly uh, that will really, we hope, bring significant reduction in what is an increasingly violent circumstance. As you know, I announced increased funding yesterday for the Border Services Agency. I'm going to have something to say uh, in the next few weeks at the most about increasing the RCMP's capacity, for example, with Interpol and local and provincial police to tackle the organized crime and the transnational 
organized crime elements. So we certainly share the sense of urgency. Uh, we have been doing a great deal of work, but we committed collectively to do more together quickly. Um, and that was, I thought, a very good takeaway. Well, w- one of the criticisms, uh, I guess, of the regulatory framework that's out there now is the Equity Association says Canada's federal motor vehicle safety regulations haven't kept pace with keyless technology and, and the issue of, the, of it being hacked. And I know you mentioned that Minister Rodriguez uh, said they're going to look at that. But what is the timeline for change there? Uh, because I, I guess any regulatory changes, Minister, would be new cars as opposed to cars that are already out there, which would still be a target. So, so what's the timeline for action there? Uh, as quickly as we can, uh, and I'm not avoiding the question, David, it's a complicated undertaking because, as you know, uh, we have an integrated car manufacturing, automobile manufacturing industry with the United States, uh, and any regulatory changes, as you say, would be prospective. But that's just one element of a whole series of elements uh, that we're prepared to bring to bear uh, on this issue, buying new scanning equipment for border services, uh, agents increasing their capacity in terms of intelli- intelligence gathering and sharing. The best way for the border services at ports, for example, in Montreal, to interdict the export of stolen vehicles is to have intelligence shared by local and provincial police. The vehicles aren't being stolen at the port of Montreal. They're stolen uh, in communities big and small across the country, but mainly in a number of big cities. Um, so the border services agents are already embedded with provincial and municipal police, but we need to do more with them. Um, and that's exactly what we all committed to do today. Right. It seems like the two inflection points to target are the point of entry into the vehicle and the point of exit from the country. Because, you know, the organized crime are stealing the cars, getting them to Montreal largely, and then getting them uh, overseas uh, for sale. But, but, but David, one thing that was interesting, the RCMP commissioner told me previously, and he repeated it today, 40% of the vehicles stolen in Canada are resold in Canada. Mm -hmm. So that's an awful lot of cars that are sold, uh, some cases to unknown buyers or un... Uh, buyers that aren't informed, obviously, as to the nature of the vehicle they're buying, fraudulent transactions. But 40% of those cars, stolen cars, are resold in Canada. So the focus on the ports as a source of export is obviously important. But local and provincial police have a lot of responsibility, and that's why I announced $121 million in Toronto with Premier Ford last week, precisely because they also have an important role to play, and we want to support them as well. Right, but, but on the port, uh, which is federal responsibility, you were asked about this today by my colleague uh, Catherine Tunney about the audit that showed that uh, most investigators in CBSA haven't completed some of their core training over the past number of years, and, and, and the, the skill development of the people who are working there to deal with this is deficient by their own internal assessment. So how quickly, uh, how did that happen and how quickly can you get that fixed? So, and very good question, how did it happen? A lot of it had to do with some of the pressure the border services felt during COVID, during the pandemic. We all know the impossible work that they were trying to do around arrivals in Canada during a global pandemic. So. That took an enormous amount of resources from the CBSA. Uh, And in many cases, the president of the CBSA told me that would explain why some agents are late in completing these courses. But that is not an acceptable circumstance. My conversation with the Border Services Agency president was that that obviously will be corrected very quickly. And there are uh, additional courses and additional training that these people, uh, men and women, who are doing, in my view, very, very effective work, uh, but they could do more effectively if they also have 
access to training programs that many of their police partners uh, have in terms of criminal intelligence work. Some of these border services agents, uh, David, are embedded with provincial and local police forces. Um, but we certainly recognize that they need to be equipped with the absolutely best skills uh, possible to do this important work. And that's going to be corrected very, very quickly. So, look, as you said, you, you, you quoted the RCMP commissioner saying about 40% of stolen cars are resold inside the country. So 60% are either never found or they leave Canada. And, and one of the things that Tom Creek from the OPP said today is that uh, criminals see this as, as uh, big money but low risk because 68% of people convicted of car theft are out in under six months. So I know the Prime Minister suggested today that you would be looking at tougher sentences for car thieves in, in the criminal code. What are we looking at there? Would it just be every car theft or would it be car theft tied to organized crime? Would it be car theft with violence? Because a lot of these elements exist in law. What kind of changes uh, might you be looking at? And as you said, there are already severe penalties for being part of an organized criminal network or using violence uh, weapons uh, in the commission of a criminal offense. Uh, the Prime Minister and Arif Arani made it very clear that we were open to uh, suggestions around strengthening the criminal code, although we believe there are already strong uh, elements, strong uh, articles in the criminal code that allow the police and prosecutors to do this important work. But you noted there is properly a concern that police shared with us today around the nexus between the money that organized criminal networks are using, are, are gaining from uh, vehicle thefts to engage in gun smuggling, gun trafficking, human trafficking, very violent offenses. So obviously we want to look at a circumstance where somebody who engages in a carjacking or uses a weapon, in some cases increasingly firearms, uh, to steal a vehicle or is part of an organized criminal network. Those should attract some of the most severe penalties in law. And that's certainly work that my colleague uh, Arif Arani is doing. So will we see that during this uh, sitting uh, of the House minister? Like, uh, you know, the, 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 the rate of uh, auto theft is, is exploding in the two biggest provinces in the country. And so there's some urgency to deal with this. And a lot of the law enforcement experts we've spoken with say deterrence is, is a key thing here. So how quickly can you move on this? I know you say as quickly as possible, but will we see legislation uh, amending this uh, during the sitting of the House? So that's something that I know Arif is working on with uh, provincial counterparts. Um, deterrence is not only the criminal code. Deterrence is police catching the person stealing the car. Uh, deterrence would be disrupting uh, organized criminal networks from being able to export uh, these vehicles from Canadian ports, not just Montreal, but principally Montreal uh, in, in a lot of these cases. Uh, so disrupting the organized criminal activity, arresting and prosecuting the people under very severe criminal law, which already exists, is also a deterrent. So if we can invest in local police, if we can invest in criminal intelligence capacities, scanners in the ports, all of that will bring pressure to bear on these criminal networks that um, shouldn't see this as a quick and easy source of money uh, and should know that they're going to get caught and face severe penalties. So we can do all of this at the same time. And the good news, uh, David, is we're very much on the job. But, you know, as a final point, Minister, there, there was a lot of reference today to manufacturers needing, needing to do more. And that would be forward-looking, obviously. But there is concern from the sector, not just with the cross-border integration challenges because of our entwinement with the U.S. market, but just at a cost to them that gets passed on to consumers. How do you get past that issue if, if the industry pushes back based on, on, on those arguments? 
And a very good question. They weren't pushing back at the meeting uh, earlier today. They want to be part of the solution. Uh, they also have clients, customers that are buying these cars. Uh, and if they're easier to be stolen than some other manufacturer, it can't be good for your vehicle sales. So they have a business reason to want to do something. We heard from the insurance industry as well. But you're right to note that it's an affordability issue. I mean, if we heard today from the insurance industry that in Ontario, $120 or $130 of the premiums that people pay to renew their vehicle insurance uh, is simply to cover the cost of these stolen vehicles. So it's already a burden on vehicle owners in the country in terms of insurance. So we wouldn't want to do something that will add to that uh, financial burden. But we think that the auto industry, certainly from what we saw today and what my colleague Pablo Rodriguez says from his discussions with them, want to be part of the solution. And the people buying their cars will want to know that they're also uh, collaborating in an effective way because everybody has to do everything we can together uh, to deal with this alarming circumstance. So you got everyone together, you got everyone on board, and there's an alignment to deal with this. How quickly do you think Canadians will see the rate of auto theft go down in this country? We hope very quickly. We hope over the next number of weeks you'll see very concerted police and border services actions, increased uh, focus on transnational criminal networks. We're already disrupting uh, a number of these criminal networks, but everybody committed today to work faster uh, and harder together. So I think we should see results, I hope, uh, very quickly. And certainly it sends a message, uh, David, to these organized criminal networks that might have seen this as an easy uh, source of funding for much more violent, in some cases, criminal activity, that that, uh, that circumstance is going to come to an end. Minister of Public Safety, Dominic Lebon, thanks for your time today. Thanks very much, David. A home builders group is calling for federal action to address the national housing crisis. Canada needs to build 5.8 million homes in the next 10 years, more than double what we're currently on track to build as a country. The Canadian Home Builders Association has come up with its strategy to meet that target. It includes 30-year amortization periods for first-time buyers on newly constructed homes and changes to Canada's immigration system to attract more skilled workers, plus factory-built construction of homes. For more on this strategy, Kevin Lee is the CEO of the Canadian Home Builders Association. Kevin Lee, thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate it, David. So you've come up with this housing strategy to help increase the housing starts, but they've been declining for a while now. So before we talk about the solutions, what, what, what's your diagnosis of what is leading to this steady decline? It's actually pretty straightforward. Um, it's all about interest rates and has been for the past couple of years, obviously, with the rise in interest rates. Um, it became that much harder to be able to afford to buy a home. And uh, we had two issues. One was that with rising interest rates, people who could still afford to buy a home were waiting on the sidelines and have been thinking that rising interest rates uh, would mean falling home prices, which is not really the case, especially new construction when construction costs have gone up so mm -hmm. much. Um, and then, of course, a lot of first-time buyers especially uh, have been have been locked out of the market because they just can't uh, crack the market with high prices and um, some, some really tight mortgage rules. But I, I wonder, the, the pace of housing starts, or the, the sorry, not the pace of housing starts necessarily, but we, we haven't been on track to build the number of homes we need for quite some time, even before the interest rate hike. So was there something prior to, to, the, to the surge in hikes to deal with inflation that, that, that was slowing things down? Absolutely, yeah. We, I mean, we've been... Certainly from the uh, Canadian Home Builders Association perspective, we've been 
pointing out that we have a major supply gap for many years. Uh, we've had an affordability crisis for many years. Homeownership rates have been dropping steadily since 2011. And so um, as a result of people not being able to afford to get into the market, you see you see those drops um, in homeownership rates and you see a, a corresponding drop in construction and starts numbers. And so, you know, from higher uh, development taxes that can make up as much as 30%, 31% of the price of a home now. And they've gone up 700% mm. over the past 20 years um, to a lot of barriers at the uh, the local level that we're hearing a lot about is something like the Housing Accelerator Fund tries to address to make it easier to get through the process of permitting and zoning and combat nimbyism. There's just been so many things making it harder to build the number of homes we need that we've gotten into a crunch where we are talking about a a 3.5 million housing uh, number in terms of a deficit. So right. it, it's taken a while to get here. It'll definitely take a while to climb back out. Yeah, so you talk about we can't really increase the numbers and the pace without dealing with some key systemic challenges in four key areas. Zoning, NIMBYism, are they part of this? What, what are you talking about there? Yeah, absolutely. That is that is a huge part of it, right? I mean, um, you know, the easiest thing to build is a new community, a new, a new development. But we, and we need to continue to do that. But as, as we all know, we also need to intensify. We need gentle densification. We need more multiplexes in what has historically been just single-family zoned areas. I mean, we need to be able to get people closer to transit. Uh, but building, especially in existing areas, even if it's on you know a major thoroughfare, tends to get a lot of local opposition, and it's much harder to go through the zoning process. So we need to really streamline all of that, take the take the politics out of that and just get down to business in, in creating the homes that uh, new Canadians, young Canadians and all Canadians yeah. need moving forward. Well, if anything, housing's got more political, not less political, but maybe to address some of the challenges you're talking about there. But to go back to the affordability issue and, and getting over that hurdle for a first-time home buyer on a new home, you're, you're pitching a 30-year amortization period for first-time buyers on a newly built home. Now, we've heard some buyers ref- financing mortgages to longer terms uh, to deal with rising interest rates, and then they can lock them in for a long period of time dealing with a lot of debt. So so how do you see this fitting in uh, as part of the solution here? Yeah, exactly. Well, the irony is if you know you're if you already have a home and, and you don't have an insured mortgage, you can actually get 30, even 35-year amortization periods. If you're a first-time buyer, uh, you will typically get what's called an insured mortgage because you have less than 20% down in terms right. of a down payment, and you can only get a 25-year amortization period. And so that's been very uh, restrictive. It's been a problem for quite some time since since prior to the, the skyrocketing prices, but it's really locked a lot of young Canadians out. And so what we're suggesting is, you know, we're at a time when we need to get more supply. So let's increase that purchasing power a little bit so that uh, young families can can buy their first home have, through a 30 amortization period. And the reason why we're saying let's just do it for new construction is there has been a suggestion that if you do it for all homes, including the existing market, you'll start to drive up house prices. So we're not convinced that would actually be the case for first time buyers. But nonetheless, if you want to be you know conservative, then just do it. For newly constructed homes that therefore inherently are not adding demand in a supply constrained market, 
because you're in fact incenting new construction every right. time one of these uh, mortgages is taken out. Right, and you preempted me because that's where I was going to go next because there is that criticism that it can drive up prices by adding more buyers with more buying power to the market, but then you could do purpose-built new developments at different uh, sales levels and help people get in starter homes, middle homes, and, and forever homes and these sorts of things. But the, the other challenge then becomes, uh, Kevin Lee, is who builds all of these things? And uh, the average age of construction workers in Canada is quite high and the number of people going in is quite low. And this is where immigration comes in. So what do you need to see there from the federal government, do you think, knowing that they're facing some criticism for too many immigrants coming in and accelerating this problem? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you talk to any industry right now and they'll tell you they don't have enough workers, right? So it's clear the Canadian economy as it ages, you know, we need workers in almost every industry. Um, And that's no different with residential construction. But one of the important things with residential construction is all these people coming to Canada do, in fact, of course, need homes. So Mm -hmm. our recommendation, especially at this point, is we really need to emphasize bringing in uh, people to Canada that really have the capacity and competencies and aspirations to be part of the home building sector. So especially in these first tranches that we're bringing in, we really emphasize the home building side of things so they can be part of the solution in terms of of, uh, building more homes for Canadians. And the government has started to tweak the... uh, express entry system for example we're going to need to do a bunch more to make sure we get the workers we need and that's that's an important part of the solution as is you know moving to productivity moving forward okay a question on productivity just as a final point you talk about more factory built homes i i have friends who have a, a modular home so is this what you're talking about here it came like a lego set and it got put together and then finished on the inside but it was built somewhere else and then brought to the lot how does that help in this situation is that reduce costs you can have an inventory how does that solve this problem the thing with factory built homes is you can build them faster much faster especially if you go to automation some some factory built like panelization uh, systems right now are really just building things indoors and then moving them to the site and creating them right. in place and that's good you get some benefits but if we can really go to a lot more automation we get huge productivity gains they can be built much faster um, and when we're facing such a labor crisis and, and shortage of workers, we're definitely going to be able to need to build more houses with not, right, let's say right now we need to double housing starts, right, to hit those targets of, you know, 3.5 million more homes than we normally would over the next decade. That would essentially mean bring in a half million more workers just right. to build houses, let alone the infrastructure and everything else. So it's clear if we're going to pursue these targets, we're going to have to do things differently. And so our sector transition strategy includes supports that would be needed to make that transition because there's really high overhead there's a lot of capital costs and there's a lot of risk because we as we know unfortunately housing is such a boom bust market Mm. and it's part of the reason why our industry hasn't transitioned that way we have some very good modular and panelized builders but most of the industry is small companies that's able to flex with the changes in the economy and and a lot of sub trades rather than your own employees so if we're going to move to more factory built then we're going to we're going to need some strategic finance. We're going to need some targeted programming. But there's a big opportunity here to really change the way we build and build things faster. Kevin Lee, we appreciate the time. That's Kevin Lee, the CEO of the Canadian Home Builders Association. Thank you, sir. Thank you, David. Bell Media's parent company is slashing thousands of jobs, and that means broad cuts to local and national television news, plus the sell-off of 45 regional radio stations, many of them in British Columbia. And BC Premier David Eby had a sharp reaction to the news, and we're going to play it in its entirety. Have a listen. Bell and corporations like Bell 
have overseen the assembly of local media assets that are treasures to local communities. Uh, they bought them up uh, like corporate vampires. They sucked the life out of them, laying off journalists. Uh, they have overseen the encrapification of local news by laying off journalists. And now uh, they say, you know, it's no longer economically viable to run these local radio stations. Uh, it's no longer economically viable to have investigative news. Uh, and they were allowed to do this. Um, the impact on communities in British Columbia of their unrestrained corporate greed, they made almost $3 billion last year, is profound. The fact that they cannot find it possible with all of their MBAs to operate a few local news stations uh, in British Columbia to ensure that people get accurate, impartial, reliable information in an age of disinformation and social media craziness is such a, an abandonment of any idea of corporate responsibility. I uh, find it reprehensible. I think it's appalling. And Bell and other companies like Bell that have done this need to be held accountable uh, for the informa information atmosphere that we find ourselves in today. Okay, the power panel is going to talk about that. Lisa Raitt is a former conservative cabinet minister. Andrew Thompson is a former Saskatchewan NDP cabinet minister. And here with me in the studio, Carlene Varian is a former chief of staff to liberal cabinet ministers. And Tonda McCharles is the Ottawa bureau chief for the Toronto Star. Uh, Tonda and crapification from the premier oh is God, quite the phrase. Oh my God, can we get that in a headline tomorrow? Like, that's awesome. It's, uh, it, it's quite <laughs> the phrase, but look, uh, uh, look, this is a bad day for our it's, colleagues at Bell it's Media. It's a very bad day. Uh, after an earlier bad day. Yes. 4,800 uh, jobs today, 1,300 earlier, more than 6,000, a lot of local news being canceled, some, a lot of national correspondence being laid off. This is ripping across the industry and across the country, and you saw the reaction there from the Premier. What, what's your take Across on? the country, and I, I think that he um, gave voice to the anger of local communities that we haven't yet heard because mm -hmm. it's local news out there is a dearth across this country. All the national networks have laid off and diminished their resources in the regions. So um, uh, I think he captures a great uh, sense of um, bewilderment and frustration. The questions he raises, though, are, are important. Um, you know, how do you hold Bell accountable for this? They've benefited from regulatory breaks and uh, across governments in the last number of years. And so now what? Uh, I think it's an indictment of the the not just the approach by the government. So it's a real in indictment of the corporate mentality at Bell because, uh, look, they've just today announced a huge increase in their dividends for their shareholders. Yeah. How tone deaf do you have to be to do that? So um, I don't know. Uh, we've heard his expression of frustration. A certain level at the federal uh, minister's level today, she also said she was extremely disappointed, but disappointment won't cut it. It's not going to restore those jobs, so I don't have the answer to that, but I think uh, it's a huge problem for everybody and the democratic discourse. Yeah, and Carlene, it's not just a Canadian problem, right? It's happening all across the United States. There are news deserts all over North America just because of you know the, the advertising money going to tech and, and companies like Bell having other more profitable business interests, and they would rather focus on those. But how does the government navigate this going forward if you're committed, or how does a country navigate this going forward if you're committed to credible information, and I know there are critics 
who will say we're not credible, in a time of disinformation, um, you know, in a democracy? Well, I think the first thing you do is is tap into the sentiments that you um, imagine the people whom you serve um, are rightly feeling. I think David Eby did that incredibly well today. Mm-hmm. Um, that was uh, that was a absolutely excellent um, press conference. I also thought that um, the federal heritage minister, you know, she had a choice to make when she came out and scrummed today about how she was going to approach this, um, given that there are some tools, but a somewhat limited set of tools um, that the feds have on this. Um, And she actually did kind of stick her neck out and say uh, the $40 million in regulatory breaks that this company has received with an understanding that jobs would be preserved, um, that that um, that agreement has been broken and I'm going to be going and looking to get our money back. Um, that's not enough. It's not going to restore the local newsrooms that have been hollowed out today. Um, well, it might make it start. worse, right? If you go squeeze the, the well, money back, it, it could compound the problem. Exactly. Um, I think or cut the dividends. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Um, but 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 that you know that that question. It's it's a poor, for-profit company that serves shareholders. It doesn't mm. serve citizens of a country. And so there's a really philosophical question at the heart of this, which is, if information and and news are a public good, uh, does it mean that a country's government has a role in ensuring that? its citizens have access to it. People like myself as a liberal would argue yes, others mm-hmm. would argue no, but but that's that philosophical debate that I think we're going to be having over the course of the next few days. So, so Lisa, on that point of, you know, that Carly makes about shareholders, uh, say, versus citizens, look, yeah. private companies need to make a profit. I totally get it, right? They, they, don't, they don't benefit from government support like we do at the public broadcast, or at least not at the scale that the CBC does. But to, to what Pascal St. Ong said today, and David Eby, they were allowed to acquire radio stations under certain conditions because of competition and, and ownership concentration and these sorts of things that they feel are not being lived up to. Their CRTC breaks they were given. The $40 million in breaks the minister said they got today is equal, dollar for dollar, to the $40 million they said today their news division is losing, and yet we see this. So what's, is there a role here for the federal government to step in on this, or is this just what happens with private industry? I think there is um, an obligation on the government to ensure that they kick over every stone to make sure that if they have the ability to recoup some of the money that has been sent that way, that they have the chance to do so. I'm, I feel very sad uh, about this. And, and I, I feel sad because on the weekend, as you know, David, because we texted about this, um, my family lives in Cape Breton. Yeah. There was a massive snowstorm in Cape Breton. I couldn't get any news on it. I did not know what was going on. Um, maybe because it was tough to get in there to figure it out, but nobody was covering it. The local guys weren't covering it. There was no local radio left in Cape Breton. And it just made me think, in times of crisis or national security disasters, what are we strung together with? How do we communicate with one another? We're a big country. And not having the ability to communicate what's happening in one part of the country with the other part of the country, save and except for CBC, I think is a real problem from a whole bunch of you know, political and, and policy policy aspects. Um, I would just conclude by saying, if this isn't an opportunity for the CBC to make a case for their existence, I don't see anyone better to do so. Well, for, uh, on that in a sec, but everybody in Cape Breton's okay, right? The family's all good? They are. Say, okay, yeah, all right, that- they're still, still stuck. I mean, I won't sure. see until spring, but... Yeah, no, no. Uh, you, me, and Tana are all used to the East Coast storms. Snowmageddon. Yeah, yeah, the groundhog should be fired. But, but Andrew, on that point, uh, and look, you know, uh, 
I work for the CBC. We're on the CBC. Obviously, I believe in the CBC. We're also looking at a workforce adjustment here at this company of a 10% job loss uh, over the next little while because of a structural deficit and, and being asked to find efficiencies by the federal government, though we haven't been ordered as a company to implement them. We are, if you believe Mr. Polyev, and I do, we're a conservative win away from the defunding of this organization as well. And with the private broadcasters and private newspapers in such rapid decline, if that comes to pass, what happens to the information ecosystem and the journalistic ecosystem of this country? Well, that is really what the big, big problem is here. And part of what, what we're seeing is and I think you referenced it earlier, is people have gone to, to digital. Not only has the ad dollar gone to digital, but the eyeballs have gone to the digital. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, in a lot of ways, the ability for the large newsrooms that were there at CBC and CTV to be able to push their stories not only in broadcast, but then to be able to put them out free of charge onto the Internet, did increase the amount of information available, but also then brought into, uh, you know, the dynamic a real problem for the local papers that I no longer needed to pay for that news. The problem is that that's all now starting to fall apart. Those newsrooms that, you know, those digital no newsrooms that were already pushing out the paper-based ones yeah. are now themselves falling back. And I can tell you, looking back uh, in Saskatchewan when I was active in politics, the importance of having those local newsrooms, to having, a, you know, an important, although I would argue fairly biased against my government uh, newspaper, <laughs> but every government's going to say that. The NDP always hating on the media, Andrew. <laughs> just the National Post guy, just the National Not Post guy, <laughs> and maybe the CBC and CTV. But apart from that, we were good with everybody else. But, you know, those, you know, having those investigative journalists around, you know, as, as cumbersome as it was to have to deal with them, they were still focused in on those local stories. And we saw as those all got prepared back and the news all of a sudden was coming out of Winnipeg and now increasingly out of nowhere, you know, th that kind of scrutiny, that understanding of what was happening at a local level was lost. And so this is a really big problem. But it's not a set of issues that the federal government is powerless on. The federal government owns the airwaves. I mean, the ability to broadcast is regulated. And I was surprised that this government, uh, in some ways not surprised because it doesn't really grab hold of those tools, but it has done nothing to actually force these uh, companies to be able to ensure that local news is maintained. That's got to happen, and it's really important for, for one other reason. Older Canadians are much more prone to get news from television. That's really important. If we lose that, generationally, it's lost. Secondly, the ability for us to have a younger generation that's looking more at streaming services to get their news, for them to be reliant entirely then on TikTok uh, instead of on other sources of curated news that are coming out, whether that's uh, newspapers that are streamed, whether that's uh, uh, newsrooms, is going to cause a huge problem, and we're going to be stuck uh, in essentially echo chambers. So yeah, this is a big problem. It's not irreversible. It is going to require a government that actually wants to act on this. Uh, and then we've got to hold the companies accountable. But you know, Tanda, the government tried to get involved uh, mm -hmm. with helping the news industry and uh, they got $100 million from Google, which is what Google offered from the jump. And uh, none of our stories can appear on Facebook or Instagram. That's right, right. and now, it is uh, having an impact. Right? It yeah. is having the, the, the ban um, that uh, Facebook and I guess Meta, so Facebook and Instagram have put on uh, Canadian news sites, does have an impact on traffic to our websites. And is the money that has been exchanged and is being dealt out to newsrooms? Look, we're all grateful for a bit of money. It funds, in our case, I think um, some digital reporters on our ex express desk. Mm -hmm. um, but these are these are not 
solutions, long-term solutions. They don't help us uh, grow a big subscriber base, which is going to be the solution in our case, right? Uh, the same for all of us. I mean, I think the problem is in all media, uh, whatever platform you're on, be it broadcast, TV broadcast, radio, print, online, audiences are fractured. And to um, Andrew's point, I mean, <laughs> I actually don't think that uh, the government can somehow magically conjure up new interest by a massive new company to come in and do pr traditional broadcasting over the no, air. I'm not arguing uh, that. Oh, okay. Well, so I, I, that's, I misunderstood them because when you're addressing you know, the older audience who still get their news from TV, great, but that's yeah. not where our future is going to lie and grow. No, I understood. But, but you know, video, we have to think about it as video, audio, and text mm -hmm. rather than television, sure. radio. And but, but Andrew, just if you wanted to clarify that and come back to just yeah. what you meant. No, so the point is, is that the CRTC has the ability to put in broadcast licenses Right. what needs to be uh, on the air. That's been in place since what R.B. Bennett's government brought that into place uh, back in the 30s. I mean, that's just been a fundamental piece. The question is, why are we not holding companies to account for that? Why is that not being strengthened that you have to have local news? Uh, you know, you could be more prescriptive on what that looks like. We seem to have gotten into this, uh, you know, approach that, well, we've, you know, done nothing and we're all out of ideas. You know, that can't be a way for moving forward in this, and it can't be one where we simply throw more public money uh, after, uh, you know, more public money to try to keep this stuff afloat. These like, businesses are profitable. EB's made that point. Bell is not a hardship case by any means. They've got to make the investment back. And, and, and a lot of their money comes from public, like uh, Spectrum and broadcast. And so, you know, so there's a lot of public ownership uh, components uh, to the profits. Tanda and then Carlene. Yeah, I was just, I think I'm trying to make the point that I don't know that the solution is in throwing more public money after public money, yeah, well, and that's not going to be the life raft for all of us. Um, what is, is unclear. Uh, certainly the Conservative Party, if they form the next government, which polls suggest they will, have uh, every intention of killing the bills that underlie the support for uh, some of this kind of funding, and to defund the CBC, and um, I think people should take them at their word. They're serious about that commitment. Yeah. Two quick things. I first want to circle back to a point that Andrew made a few minutes ago. Um, and, and to use David Eby's word, you know, the encropification of, of, of media. I'll give you a perfect example. I'm also from Saskatchewan, and I see it mm -hmm. twice a year, every year, when I log on to my, my Regina News, and um, I see the syndicated articles pop up saying, don't forget to turn your clocks back. Tonight's daylight savings yeah, yeah. time. Well, we don't do daylight savings time yeah. in Saskatchewan. Yeah. And, that, and that's how you know the level to which things have been automated. Yeah. But the second point I would just make is that um, talking about CRTC and, and, and bandwidth and, and, and those pieces, that will help to a certain extent. But increasingly, those are not the, the venues or the mediums through which Canadians consume their news um, or, or get their information. Um, I, so I think if we focus too much on that, we risk um, being, uh, you know, outdating ourselves before we, uh, yeah, you you're know, not before really we actually get into the problem. problem. Yeah, right. Well, it's exactly. bad news for us on Thursdays then, if that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right, Lisa, quick last word to you. I've gone over time, but, but I, I wanted to get the points in. Quick final thoughts from you on this. I would just say that we may have to try to reframe what the battle is about. It's horrible and horrific that people, 4,000 people have lost their jobs today. But if we always turn this into a, a debate about whether or not the journalistic uh, enterprise is over and people can't get jobs in, in newspapers, and if we always focus on the journalism of it as opposed to the people receiving the information, we're, we're not always going to be on the same page in terms of how we're going to approach the problem. I prefer to think about the impact it's going to have on society, not that you're not getting the right news, but that you're just not getting any news at all.
that's Canadian in nature. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's a good point. But like uh, I tell you, some of my f- friends lost their jobs today, and uh, I'll definitely be buying one of them uh, many drinks uh, when I get off the air here tonight. Uh, thank I you agree. all for not in crapifying this conversation to borrow from the Premier of British Columbia. Tana McCharles, Carleen Varian, Andrew Thompson, and Lisa Wright. Thank you, gang. Thanks, David. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.